0: Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 10 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Robert Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, March 29th, and I'm Bobby Chesney.
1: And I'm Steve Lottick. Bobby, how's your bracket?
0: Oh, uh... See, well, see what, what had <laughs> happened was... Uh, see, officer, you know, see, what I'm really bumming about is that I guess I've talked about my bracket on, on the air before, and so I can't deny... Nope. No, I don't have any teams left. So I have I have
1: Gonzaga left in the Final Four, but not winning anything um, at the moment. I am hanging on for dear life in my wife's office pool. I'm in third place, which means I'm in the money. But if and only if both Gonzaga and North Carolina lose on Saturday, so Oregon, South Carolina, let's go.
0: That will be that'll be unlikely to happen. Now that you've said it, but uh, uh, good luck yeah. to everybody. So, yeah. Well, so what else do we have for people besides our, our
1: terrible <sighs> predictions? Well, so, Bobby, we have the very beginning of our Ask Us. You know, it's like an AMA, I guess, that we're mm-hmm. going to do at the end of the episode today. Um, we're going to talk about a couple of new interesting cert petitions in Guantanamo Military Commission cases. Um, there's a new move for on banc review by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of an interesting request by the ACLU. I-, I wish this weren't so, but there's more to say about everyone's favorite chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. We've got we've got some privilege to discuss. We That's have some privilege fine. to discuss. Privilege um, doctrine. We're gonna get down in the weeds. Out with the old and in with the newness.
0: Oh,
1: oh, pitch. Sorry. Um, (laughs) uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the sort of ongoing fallout from the collateral damage in the Mosul airstrike. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think we're going to wrap up before we get to question time with uh, some interesting announcement from DOJ about naturalization fraud charges against some Iraqi refugees. Emphasis in the press release on refugees. Boy, boy did they make sure
0: that those were the first words spoken, didn't they?
1: And, And Bobby, the sad thing is I feel like it's been a quiet week. It really has. It's almost disappointing. We may
0: have to go to a, you know, a bi-weekly. Nah. nah. I, I have faith that this administration <laughs> is going to keep us, keep us in business. Let's, let's, if they don't, we will threaten to fill the entire 40, 50 minutes with our own sort of pop culture and sports observations. Brilliant.
1: Uh, I mean, it, baseball season is around the corner, and, you know, the Mets are, I mean, I'm just saying.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, um, so the military commissions um, – Heading back to the Supreme Court. Heading Possibly. back to the Supreme Court. What have Court. we got? What's what are in these cert petitions? Let's let's talk a little bit about Nashiri and a lot about Bobby.
1: Sure. So we'll take Nishiri first. So um, Nashiri, of course, is a defendant currently, Bobby, before the military commissions. Um, the charges against him are are capital charges. They're tied principally to his alleged role in two attacks: the October two thousand bombing. Of the USS Cole, mm-hmm. obviously killed, I think it was 17 American sailors. Um, you also have the 2002 bombing of the French tanker, the MV Limburg. Um, Nashiri's basic claim is focused on the, the coal part of this case. Um, he's arguing that at the time he allegedly was involved in that plot, Bobby, we weren't at war with Al-Qaeda. It was October
0: 2000, right, 11 months yeah. before 9-11. And, and of course, from a sort of a law of armed conflict or IHL perspective, this presents a, a great field of application question. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know that in the post 9-11 period, there's been endless controversy about where and when, under what circumstances, that the the laws of armed conflict have come into play. Um, and there's been a lot of dispute, even as to post 9-11 events, at least with respect to uh, counterterrorism activities outside of places like Afghanistan and Iraq, where there have been levels of intensity in the conflict that have settled that issue in those, those locations. This is looking backwards pre-9-11. So even, even if you accept the uh, US government position from 9-11 onwards, this requires a further step. And th- not just a further step, Bobby, but also a statutorily mandated
1: step. So you know, this is not actually sort of an ethereal, what does international law say and is it binding? In this case, the Military Commissions Act, the underlying statute that authorizes these trials in the first place, Conditions the exercise of jurisdiction on there being hostilities. And the statute further defines hostilities as an
0: armed conflict subject to the laws of war. Right. And so this is a lot like how in the Hamdan 2006 Supreme Court case, Hamdan 1, to those who are um, scoring at home, Hamdan 1, the original. a big Supreme Court case from summer 2006, where the court ended up having to get into the conflict categorization question under the Geneva Conventions and issuing its famous uh, Common Article Three ruling. And it had to do that because the statute basically required reference to this sort of thing. So, parallel structure here. Indeed. Now, what complicates Nashiri's case, Bobby, as we mentioned,
1: is this is a pretrial challenge, right? Nashiri is actually trying to have the courts resolve this question before he goes through the exercise of a potential capital case and post-conviction appeal.
0: Now, by the way, is that I think I saw the other day that there was word out about trying to set the trial in his case uh, for next spring, spring 18. Do you think that's connected? Um, I, it wouldn't
1: shock me, Bobby, if the Justice Department, which is already in the middle, I suspect, of preparing their opposition in this case, mm-hmm. had something to do with trying to light a fire under these proceedings. Well, if somebody would light a fire under some of
0: these proceedings, it's 2017. Hey, we have a new convening authority. We, okay, so that... I, I was so tickled to see this. I, I think I speak for Steve here. We both love Harvey Rishikoff. What what a friend he is, and and, I, what, I, a, and what a terrible thankless job it is <laughs> to be
1: the convening authority of the military commission. Harvey, we don't know whether to
0: congratulate you or just extend our condolences, but either way, um, we know you'll you'll do a great job. Um, so Harvey Rishikoff is is the new convening authority. And Steve, can you quickly describe what the convening authorities? Uh, key responsibilities
1: So the idea behind the convening authority, Bobby, is sort of to parallel the role of the judge advocate general in the court martial context, right? The convening authority is there to refer charges, to sort of oversee what's going on. He actually has the authority to make charges go away, right, if he actually disapproves of the findings and sentence. Um, of the trial court. It's a pretty powerful
0: role. Is that, that is that putting, only an ameliorating function? Yes. In,
1: OK. Can exacerbate, can
0: ameliorate, right? But also is the initiating power, right? Mm-hmm. So is the one who sort of kicks the case off. Yeah. So it functions almost like a grand jury in, in a that way, respect. In a, a way. one-man, Harvey Rishkoff, one-man grand jury for military commission. But
1: to come back to Nashiri for a second, I mean, I think the timing is a really interesting point here because nishiri has argued that even on a relatively aggressive time frame, um, it's It's not. It's his position is that his appeal would not get back to the Supreme Court until 2024. That <laughs> as slowly as the military commissions are working, Bobby, we both hey. talked about how slow appeals in the Court of Military Commission Review have been. Then an appeal to the D.C. Circuit. It's a capital case, so all of these things will go even more slowly. And so the Shiri's argument is, hey, everybody, yes, I'm trying to challenge this pretrial. Yes, that's unusual. But there are three reasons why you should let me re- resolve this now. Um, reason number one: I'm challenging the jurisdiction of the military commission, right? I'm objecting to the power to be tried by the military in the first place. That right cannot be adequately vindicated after I've been tried, even if I'm ultimately, even if my conviction's thrown out. Um, and Bobby, there is precedent, right, to allow pre-trial jurisdictional challenges. After all, Hamdan on one was just yeah. such a thing. Yeah. Argument number two. Um, in any event, right, even if this wasn't true in the ordinary case, it's going to be a long frickin' time before this question comes back. And so isn't it in everyone's interest, right, mine, okay. the government's, everybody's, to have this question settled before we potentially waste a ton of money and effort and energy yeah. on a potentially void conviction? So that, that's right. That's two of them. That's and the two. Third? The third, and this is, I think, where things get a little more tricky, is Nishiri says, and oh, by the way, I was tortured. Um, right? And I'm not saying that the torture is a reason to throw out my, um, my charges, is a reason to dismiss this case, but the torture does and should, Nishiri argues, bear on my entitlement to
0: have my claims heard now. Right, just, that Is this sort of just a loose sort of general equity point that I've, I've been treated badly and therefore give me a break on well, this? Well, it's, it's a little a more than tense? that,
1: right, that I've been treated badly, that there are consequences, that I'm continuing to suffer, right, emotional and psychological consequences. But how would speedy or slow resolution of this question address those consequences? So jury says, right, if I'm right that I can't be tried for this offense, then perhaps this isn't a capital case anymore. Right, and that there are implications, there are psychological and emotional ramifications yeah. for knowing that I'm not going to be facing a death penalty right, versus an ordinary criminal case.
0: Yeah, so I'd be a little surprised if that ends up doing much of the work although, on this. Although it
1: did draw the attention of Judge David Tadel on the D.C. Circuit. I mean, so the, the posture of this case is Nashiri brought a habeas and mandamus petition. The district court threw, uh, refused to hear the habeas under abstention grounds. The Court of Appeals affirmed, but by a two-to-one vote, with Judge Tatel dissenting partly because of the torture considerations. Um, The DC Circuit also has a very high bar for mandamus. DC Circuit says, you know, whether you're right or wrong, the law is not clear enough, so no mandamus. Um, And now comes the Supreme Court with Nishiri saying, why shouldn't we settle this question one way or the other
0: now? Well, you know, uh, prognosticating—I've already demonstrated in the basketball context—I'm no good at this. So that's I, why we're law professors. That's right. So we'll switch to something that we do know more about. I, you know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's never a great bet to say, "Yeah, I think the court's going to take something." But on on both of these, frankly, the the sheer passage of time looms really large. And then something else you and I were talking about earlier that I think's worth mentioning here. Um, famously, Supreme Court stayed out of the Guantanamo game, in all respects, during the Obama years. Uh, it's really noticeable when you look back on it. <laughs> there, was a, there was a fair amount of engagement during the Bush years, and then suddenly you know, things were allowed to percolate in the lower courts all throughout the past eight years. But it's President Trump now, and I don't think that's irrelevant to at least some of the justices as they ponder whether to re-engage on this. It, and not just because... Uh, you know, famously, there, there, are, there are trust issues, uh, concerns that surround President Trump that are different on this particular issue than they were for President Obama. Um, but substantively, not just trust, uh, President Trump has made clear he'd really like to, to put some real muscle into bringing new people to Guantanamo, using the commissions. We're hearing all about it. So suddenly it doesn't seem like such a legacy situation anymore. This may really matter. And if it's going to turn out that there's a certain category of cases that are time-barred, or not time-barred is the wrong word, that suggests that they were prosecutable now aren't. It's sort of the reverse of that. Right. They, they weren't prosecutable because of when they happened. If that's the line, if that line is right. September 2001... Better to draw that line now. Yeah, there's still people out there whose offense conduct might be from then. It, it needs to be drawn now if, if it's going to be drawn at all. So, you know,
1: uh, Attorney General Sessions said in a radio interview with Hugh Hewitt a couple of weeks ago um, that the reason why the Guantanamo Commissions have languished um, is because of, this is a direct quote, the quote, the legal complications that the Obama administration seemed to allow to linger and never get decided." Unquote. Now, Bobby, I wouldn't put the blame on the Obama administration. I actually think the D.C. Circuit bears some responsibility for how it has not really settled the matter in both Nashiri and Balul. but whoever's to blame, right, I think the session sentiment is the strongest case for Sir Shirari, right, that it's actually in the interests of the commissions to have these legitimacy questions resolved, to have the jurisdiction settled. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that
0: way. I, my reaction was, you know, well, that's just sort of a, a that was a political well, of sort course. of dig, um, that it's not fair at all as a description. But but it actually is sort of a, an argument to be thrown back at them saying, you seem to you seem to be bothered by the delay. We do need to iron this out. I, look, I do think this should be not a political point, and it, it should not be a prosecution or defense point. We need to know the basic ground rules. And, and, and one of them is, when does the jurisdiction start clock again? Right. And, and 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 that actually, so I also think Nashiri actually has
1: benefited from getting to the court at about the same time as Balul. Yeah. Um, and maybe it well, was mutual a reinforcement. Yeah. Right. And so Balool, Bobby, I'm curious if you agree with me. We, we haven't planned this out. We haven't consulted previously. Um, <laughs> we don't plan, any we don't plan anything. We don't plan anything. And that includes our classes. Sorry, students. Bobby, I think the, the underlying constitutional question in Balool, right, what I'm going to call the Article 3 question, what we'll describe in a minute, has been the elephant in the room for the Guantanamo military commissions from the get-go, right? Whether they can try offenses that are beyond the well-established historical body of international war
0: crimes has been almost like the basic fight and the basic dispute for the whole time. So I think it's super important. I'm not sure I would would elevate it to being (laughs) quite on that plateau, but I don't mean to denigrate the relevance of it. Um, here's how I look at this. The, the entire set of policy questions surrounding the use of military commissions are bound up in a comparative institutional judgment mm-hmm. where you're comparing and trading off amongst, uh, from, from the prosecutorial side, civilian criminal court. Courts martial or military commissions, and then apart from that, sometimes to, in certain ways, you're also trading off decisions about uh, rendition or working by within through local forces, or sometimes you know there's there's the the possibility that a drone strike in some way intera- interacts with this that sort of thing. But focusing in on the criminal trade-offs between civilian prosecution or military commissions, which is sort of the main lens through which people think about this, the case reason the commissions needs to rest on something, right? And the possibilities are that there's some perceived net advantage on you know the, the rules of process and evidence. And that was a big part of the early narrative about the commissions. And over time, those differences have been ironed out and ironed out to where the delta between the civilian system and the court-martial system on one hand military commissions and the other, there, there's really not much justification. For At them. least on paper. At least certainly on paper, right? It's be, they become so close. There's no reason to hang your hat on that.
1: I, I think some of the defense lawyers would object
0: that it Of is course, practice. Of course, yeah. There there are practicalities of implementation right. that kind of enter into it. Then there's, what else is there? Well, there's also substantive criminal law. I like, when, when teaching, I like to draw a diagram where you have, you know, one axis is the, the, the Difficult, level of difficulty in the process and evidentiary rules, and then there's the level of difficulty on the range of offenses, right? And, and to really understand the the flexibility of a system for prosecution or the protectiveness from a libertarian perspective, you got to map both those axes. Um, well, the delta, the differential on process and evidence has been collapsing, but what about the charges that are available? And that's where that's where I'm a is so important. This question of whether or not the offenses that have uncertain status as, or, or indeed concededly not, but this is an important point, right? The government concedes conspiracy, not or at least they had until now conceded, we'll see if this stays, conceded that a conspiracy is not standing alone, not an offense against the laws of war. If you can't charge that in military commissions, but you can charge it in a civilian court, and the process and evidentiary rules have kind of you know closed the gap, um, well, that's a strong argument to go to civilian court. And, uh, there are other considerations though, right? There's politics, there's symbolism, there's, there's larger sort of perceptions of legitimacy that enter into it. And
1: there's another piece of this, which is if you cannot charge domestic offenses, and just to be clear to everybody, right, the que- the, there are a couple of questions questions Balu, but the big question is whether it was constitutional for Congress in 2006 in response to the Hamdan one Supreme Court decision to expressly authorize military commissions to try offenses that are not clearly established right. international war crimes.
0: And, and to put a finer point on it, did doing that, did that attempt unconstitutionally infringe on the Article Three prerogative to try those cases? Right, because
1: the Supreme Court has held, most notably in the 1942 case ex parte in the Nazi saboteur case, that it is constitutional. For military commissions to try "quote enemy belligerents" unquote for "quote
0: offenses against the laws of war" right. unquote. Right. So that's our premise. You begin there. You can do that, but if you concede that conspiracy or anything else is outside the scope, well, then it it kind of presents a question: that did did Kieran actually say otherwise? No, it would violate Article Three. No, I mean or right, just so imply. Kieran. Right? Well, so so this is a whole
1: fight over Kieran, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of folks floor who, or ceiling, floor or ceiling, or or unclear. Um yeah. In his concurrent opinion in the panel decision in the D.C. Circuit, Judge Tadel read Kieran as a ceiling um, yeah. that, you know, especially if you read Kieran against the Civil War era case ex parte Milligan, mm-hmm. yeah. Kieran looks like a limited exception to Milligan's more general prohibition of military trials when the civilian courts are open. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Judge Tadel is not necessarily speaking for everyone. And so, you know, Bobby, I have my own views. I've written a lot <laughs> yes you have. on this topic um, but but I think the key point here is wh- whoever's right right about whether a military commission can try domestic offenses or not this is the you know central question that has been dogging the commissions there have been eight convictions by the commissions to date seven of them are for domestic offenses right um, four of those seven have already been vacated on appeal for various, um uh, infirmities including ex post facto you know the only current case bobby that's you know a clearly established international war crime with no baggage 9 11 trial absolutely which
0: i think is a big factor here the case that matters most by far is not threatened by this at all and that's, um, that that may well help the court feel comfortable
1: but the flip side is right that it could be if the court is sympathetic to my view right which is that it's a real problem if you cross the line from international war crimes yeah. to domestic offenses it could be that that has the effect of limiting the commissions basically to the 9-11 trial. Right. right. And so we would have spent, you know, by some estimates, over a billion dollars and 16 years and all
0: kinds of effort on one case. Right. Well, there's also the forward-looking question. I mean, this is going to determine the utility of the commissions going forward. Um, I don't think we're ever going to see an outcome that would in any way limit the ability to come back to commissions, at least if congressionally authorized, for things like killing your prisoner, intentionally killing civilians, that sort of thing. Um, And the 9-11 Commission will fall within that kind of protective window. So the interesting question here is knowing, as we do, that a big part of counterterrorism is being able to charge these uh, prevention-oriented crimes like material support and conspiracy. Will the commissions ever be useful for that? That's why this is such an important case. I think
1: that's right. And so the real, now, now just to add one point to sort of the posture, right? Um, so the way we framed it so far, Bobby, it's an obvious candidate for certiorari, yep. it's an obvious candidate for the court to step in. The problem is the D.C. Circuit has done its best to make this case hard, right? And so without getting into the whole sordid litigation history, the most recent ruling by the D.C. Circuit, an en banc decision from October in which nine judges participated, affirmed Albalul's conspiracy conviction but with no controlling majority (laughs) rationale. Right,
0: which makes it a very imperfect vehicle for further engagement. Right,
1: so four of the nine judges um, joined an opinion by Judge Brett Kavanaugh um, that held that, in his view, Congress does have the constitutional authority to subject at least some domestic offenses to trial by military commission. Three judges joined a dissent by Judge David Tadel saying, no, disagrees. Um, And there are two in the middle, Judge Patricia Millett, Judge Roger Wilkins, each wrote separate, probably much narrower concurrences that don't bless domestic trials in the military commissions in general, but that have technical reasons for affirming all the Lewis right, conviction. Right.
0: So basically, look, I think that I think this is too important. It's been going on too long. And suddenly, with the Trump administration, looms as really relevant for prospective captures of, say, an Islamic State member or an AQP, AQAP member who can't be linked to a particular bad act but could maybe be charged with a conspiracy count. Suddenly, the equities for, for taking it and resolving it, I think, are enough to overcome the, the muddiness of the record below.
1: I think that's right. I mean, I think it's probably going to be incumbent upon Belul and potential Amiki in support of Balul, as, as I look in the mirror, um, right, to perhaps try to help convince the justices that the narrower grounds offered by Judges Millett and Wilkins Aren't actually that convincing.
0: Who needs a Mickey? Maybe there's some. Uh, maybe
1: there's some clerks that are listening to us right now. Um, well, if you are, don't tell us. Um, anyway, <laughs> I, I think Bobby, we both agree that Balul really is a critical case, not just for the past of the military commissions, yeah. but for their future utility.
0: Yeah, absolutely. To me, this is all about what's the future utility. That's the big fish in the room. So, uh, big th- fish in the room is that? A, is that a saying? Big fish in the room. That's the big fish, or elephant in the, the, room. Elephant in the room?
1: Elephant in the pond. Let's move on. All right. Um, just uh, to give everyone a sense of timing. So Nashiri was actually filed back in January, but because a lot of the material in there is classified, it was just unsealed last week. It's going to be docketed this week. Yeah. Belul filed yesterday, Tuesday, docketed today. So, Bobby, we're probably not going to know how the Supreme Court's going to rule till the end of the summer. Yeah, this is going to hang over us for a while, just for the briefing. We won't know if they're going to take the case. So, you know. Probably September. And then even if they take the case in September, you're probably looking at like a January or February 2018 argument.
0: So, we'll be back to the old routine where in June of an even year, in 2018, yeah. we'll get a big Guantanamo ruin. Oh That's gosh. how it used to be in 04, 06, 06 and 08. And skip then a decade, then we're back. We, no almost, we almost got in 2010 with the Uyghurs.
1: And then... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, right. no, it's
0: just like Star Trek movies, only the even number ones, right? Up to six. Let's, not talk, I about, stopped let's not talk about,
1: you know, ones after six. Um,
0: what so, else have we got?
1: Um, speaking of courts, right, there's actually a really interesting blog post on lawfare from yesterday by Michael Lindhorst um, about how the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the FISA court, is going to have a rare on bonk session to rehear the ACLU's claim that it's entitled to assert a First Amendment right to see various uh, FISA court decisions upholding the government's bulk data collection program. Um, Just to give a little bit of context, back in January, we learned of an opinion by Judge Collier, we saw the opinion, it's actually, I think there was no classified information in the opinion. Um, Opinion by Judge Collier held that the ACLU did not have standing, Um, but Bobby, Judge Collier's opinion concluded that the ACLU didn't have standing because it concluded that the ACLU did not have a first amendment right of access to these opinions.
0: So I'm not a standing guru. I will defer to you on this. I play one on TV. But I I seem to recall that, that going to the merits isn't always of what you do in this sort of analysis. Not right? only is it not
1: always what you do, it's never what you do. Okay, um, so what,
0: what should be the analysis? So the analysis should be, right,
1: is the ACLU able to show a concrete injury, in fact, okay. that is caused right by the um, wrongful, in the ACLU's view, um, uh, classification and- no, So, so let
0: me pause there. Well, how yeah. come that doesn't serve as the wedge, wrongful? Yeah. Why doesn't that serve as the wedge through which the merits enter Well, into? so
1: because at the, uh, at the sort of effective equivalent of a motion to dismiss, right? We assume that the facts are as the ACLU alleges, right? We assume that there's a constitutional violation. And then we ask, assuming the constitutional violation, is the ACLU able to to bring this case? Right. So, and indeed, I think the FISA court has recognized it because the order the FISA court issued um, is only on the standing question. It has directed the parties to file briefs addressing whether the ACLU established standing, quote, notwithstanding that a First Amendment qualified right of access does not apply to the judicial opinions they seek, unquote. <laughs> so it strikes me that the court is saying, we see the
0: tension We here. got it. And we want you just to address the standing doctrine in a conventional way. We'll see what happens next. And
1: it's still a really interesting question, Bobby, because there's no express procedure in statute or in the FISA court's rules for an outside party to come in and file a motion like the one the ACLU has filed here. So a holding that they do have standing may not matter in this case because the court's saying rather loudly that there's no first amendment right here, but it might matter in future cases, right? It might be a way to allow certain outside parties to bring certain kinds of collateral yeah. claims before no, the vice right. court.
0: But what's striking to me is the very fact that we know all this, that this is going on mm-hmm. and that we know about it and can talk about it and have seen some. There, there's, there has been, whether it's enough or not, it's a different question, but there clearly has been quite a sea change in the amount of information about fisc operations that are that are available to the public and
1: I wonder if some of this is either because of or at least, you know, partially the response to um, the USA Freedom Act and its provisions for increased transparency from the FISA court.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's that plus, the, I mean, that's running with the grain of the larger momentum created by the, the post Snowden moment.
1: So I guess that's another way of saying, you know, stay tuned. Indeed. Um, all right, all right so else? I think we're done with courts, at least for the moment, Bobby. You want to pivot to
0: our, our your and my favorite House committee chairman, Devin Nunes? Okay, so this, we'll, we'll try to be brief here, although it's a little tricky because we really want to get into the legal weeds on the doctrine of privilege. Um, and so I, why don't we start with ha- what, what, what the hell is yeah, So there's yeah. a Washington
1: Post story, Bobby, from yesterday um, that tried, that that tells a piece of the story that we were puzzling over last week in a way that at least Bobby to me is deeply convincing. Okay. Um, right. So the Washington Post story basically says the reason why Devin Nunes all of a sudden cancels the big high profile
0: hearing that the House Intelligence Committee was supposed to have, I think, this week. Right. So on the Russian investigation, right. Yates. Clapper and Brennan were all going to testify. And maybe
1: Paul Manafort, right, and maybe a few other folks. So we had speculated, Bobby, on last week's episode that part of this was, you know, to sort of just shut down the the news cycle, right, Right. to sort of take attention off of this to sort of – This
0: is not, now's not a good time.
1: Now's not a good time. Um, So the Washington Post actually offers a more concrete thesis, Mm -hmm. um, which is that on the same day that Nunes announces that he's canceling the hearing, there had been the latest round of correspondence between lawyers for Sally Yates, the former deputy attorney general, um, and the White House counsel. Um, And the correspondence was over whether Yates was going to testify at this hearing, Bobby, specifically about what she, as deputy attorney general, had communicated to the White House about the Justice Department's investigation of then National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Well,
0: wow, a lot of threads coming together. <laughs> and this would have been a communication with the White House counsel, not directly with the President, but with the President's core advisor. Right, and, uh, and, 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 and we advisors.
1: have a couple of the letters, right? And so the yeah. letters make clear that Yates was invited to testify by the House Intelligence Committee, communicated the invitation and her intent to accept the invitation to the Justice Department, the Justice Department says, this is not up to us, right? The privilege in this case, such as it is, is held by the President. This is a matter between you and the White House um, through the White House counsel. Shifts to the White House counsel. Don McGahn, the White House counsel, writes a letter that says, um, we have real concerns about you testifying. We think there are privileges at stake here.
0: You know let's chat right and so the, let's let's get down into the details of what privileges have been invoked here and so a lot of the coverage says executive privilege but we got we got to dis- disaggregate two different kinds of privilege that seem to be an issue there was a direct claim I think by the White House counsel that uh, the presidential communications privilege uh, attaches and then a suggestion that there might also be a claim under the deliberative process privilege that the presidential communications privilege is rooted in article 2, uh, and the separation of powers, and, and we're all kind of familiar with it from the Nixon years. Right, so, I
1: mean, and if you're not familiar with it, right, the Supreme Court in 1974 in a case shockingly Bobby titled the United States versus Nixon, um, <laughs> right, recognizes a qualified but very real constitutionally grounded executive privilege that protects internal confidential executive branch communications from disclosure absent a sufficiently compelling justification for overriding the privilege.
0: Right. And, and then, so I'm going to read here in a second from a 1997 D.C. Circuit opinion uh, titled Re Sealed Case, but it's from the Independent... Great account- name. Yeah. <laughs> it's used a lot, though.
1: Overdone. <laughs> that Sealed Case guy is always getting into trouble. He really
0: is. Um, I was about to make an embarrassing admission about being confused in law school about mm-hmm. how cases in the casebook would begin with this parentheses. And there'd be a last name and then a comma and then J. And I was like, I can't believe how many judges' first names I know, begin first with the J. J. That's right. I
1: had a friend in law school who didn't understand why, you know, Regina kept getting
0: sued. Yeah, she's trouble. That she's that queen. That queen is a real asshole. Rex, Rex is just as bad. Rex, that Rex guy. <laughs> so anyways, um, in in this case from the 90s, which is involved uh, the ESPY investigation, there were there were bunch of claims of similar privilege, and, the, and this is sort of a useful, I think, synopsis of how this area works. So here goes a quote from uh, from Enray Sealed Case, D.C. Circuit. Oh, while the presidential communications privilege and the deliberative process privilege are closely affiliated, the two privileges are distinct and have different scopes. Both are executive privileges designed to protect executive branch decision-making, but one applies to decision-making of executive officials generally, the other specifically to decision-making of the president. The presidential privilege is rooted in the constitutional separation of powers, the president's unique constitutional role. The deliberative process privilege is primarily a common law privilege. Consequently, congressional or judicial negation of the presidential communication privilege is subject to greater scrutiny than denial of the deliberative privilege. Now, it goes on and on. The, the important point here is you know, neither of these are absolute privileges, whatever their source, constitutional or common law. They're not absolute. They can be overcome in cases of need. And the opinion goes on to say, let me see if I can get the quote here, uh, the need determination is to be made flexibly on a case-by-case ad hoc basis. For example... Where there is reason to believe the document sought, and that was a documentary case, not a testimonial case, where the document sought may shed light on government misconduct, hmm. the privilege is routinely denied on the grounds that shielding internal government deliberations in this context does not serve the public's interest in honest, effective government. So, can I call a timeout?
1: Yep. So, so here's my timeout question. Why is privilege relevant, right? This is not, so a typical privilege case um, a congressional committee is trying to get at the goods. Right. And the executive branch is, the witness is resisting. And their witness is resisting. And so the you know the House Judiciary Committee subpoenas Harriet Myers. And Harriet Myers says, no, I'm not testifying because I believe I have privilege. Right. That's the classic context. Sally Yates apparently wants to testify. She is not an executive branch
0: employee. Right. But the privilege doesn't belong to her. It belongs to the president. This sure. is like attorney-client privilege. And it's known to her, and she's the attorney, but the client doesn't want the disclosure. Yeah, but I guess here's the question, right? I mean, if if
1: Sally Yates and, and we we started a feature this week where we solicited questions online, and one of our um, seven listeners, right, wrote in <laughs> to ask, what is stopping Sally Yates from just going in front of a camera right. um, and telling well, her that's story? That's a
0: very different question. It's not her privilege, but physically, obviously, nothing physically stopping her if she were. Is still- it illegal? Well, if she were still a DOJ employee, which, thanks to the Trump administration, of course, she's not. Yeah,
1: no to Trump administration, you might have been a little quick on that trigger.
0: Of course, I, I think at this point she would go ahead and leave anyway. Of course. But if, you know, in this kind of circumstance where you have a, a sort of an uncooperative employee. Former if, employee. And, you know, well, if they were still an employee, you could use the leverage of the employment to try right. to control, to get them to play ball. But this is not someone who works for you anymore. And I
1: assume that if Sally had signed some kind of non-disclosure agreement that covered this information, we already would have heard about it from the White House counsel in one of these letters. Yeah, that one's,
0: that one's kind of interesting. Maybe that shoe will still drop. So instead, what is there? Well, there's no, as, as we said in class when our students asked about this earlier, there's no... Federal criminal statute. There's no prosecution risk here. That's as long clear. as she's not disclosing classified information. Right, and so so what's left? Well, in theory, could the White House, if she says, "Guys, I'm going to go testify," or indeed, "I'm going to go walk outside for a press conference in an hour," could they get a restraining order? Which uh, would be as, which would be
1: a prior restraint of speech, right? right so which the courts they, usually are incredibly reluctant to grant. Right. So could it be done? I mean. Anything could be done, yeah. Bobby. I am Seems co- unlikely. Colored, well, so color me as, I mean, I'm with you that there's an interesting privilege question here. I'm with you that it would be really remarkably um, enlightening to have that litigated. I'm not sure if this is the kind of context where that claim can properly be asserted. And I think that's exactly why. The Devin White has, House would
0: have to sue her.
1: And I, to think that, and I think that's exactly why Nunes canceled the hearing, right? Because right. To, to tie all these things together, come, you know... Uh, the hearing scheduled for Tuesday. It's Friday, or Thursday, whenever Nina's scheduled to cancel the hearing, right? His only option at that point is to deprive her of the microphone. Right. And, which he did. And I think Aaron, it's
0: fairly clear sooner or later she is going to testify. Sean Spicer said he looks forward to her testimony. I I really don't think Sean Spicer is maybe looking forward admit, to her testimony. Maybe we should, yeah, we should uh, take that with a grain of salt. But I don't think anyone thinks that she can be kept silent on this issue. Right. So all we're really talking about here is some academically interesting doctrinal issues combined with some politically interesting uh, maneuvering to create space to try to work this out, which is how this sort of thing usually does get worked yes, out. Yes, but with one exception. And so this may just, I, you may not agree
1: with me on this and, and I'm just going to be clear this is just me speaking for myself more than anything else we have talked about so far it exposes to me how much Devin Nunes is a surrogate for President Trump and not an oversight official because it is not his job as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee to cancel a hearing because he has concerns about the presidential privilege
0: claim. So I, I disagree with you to a limited extent of, in part it's because I think I'm much more concerned about some of the earlier stuff yeah. like you know you know secret visits to the White House yeah. to kind of get this inside briefing when you're supposed to be conducting. And, and, and that's okay, far, okay, far more concerning. And
1: sources and methods that he won't even reveal to the, to the no, briefing yeah, And also,
0: you know, sort of a, a, a spun description of, you know, oh, there's an unmasking problem yeah. here when it didn't seem like in fact there is. On the
1: list yeah. of Devin Nunes sins, maybe this
0: isn't normal. Okay, so, so that's one direction. But then pushing back the other direction, which is, I think, where you were going at. Um, actually, I don't think like, it's in the abstract all that crazy for a committee chairman uh, and on a fast-moving investigative cycle like this to when a dispute of this kind breaks out to take process action to create space for further negotiations unilaterally
1: without the support of the ranking member or anyone else on the committee yeah, there's
0: a clearly a process foul insofar as things are going on where where Schiff is being frozen out um, I mean that right imagine if imagine
1: if have gone to Schiff and said hey Adam you know, yeah. we have a messy privilege question here. Let's, let's cool things off for a week. Let, let's, let's, let's have a gentleman's agreement, right? You know, I'm not hiding anything. Let's, let them work it out. We're going to have this hearing, but let them work it out. Like, you know... To me, the foul here is not the bottom line, although I still think that's weird. The foul is Nunes taking it upon himself to be the one who's going to be the the uber protector of the privilege.
0: So, Hipsy just continues to get shot in the foot by by Nunes by and itself. others. So, to, so here I say, uh, Senate Select Committee, time for you guys to uh, you know take the helm here.
1: And, and this this leads to my favorite quote of the week, um, Senator Richard Burr, the not Aaron Burr. I don't believe they're related. Although, it would be kind of funny if they
0: were. Uh, I've never heard that. Yeah, Yeah, I don't think
1: they're related. Anyway, uh, Richard Burr, obviously, senator from North Carolina, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, was asked quite specifically um, if he continues to have confidence in Chairman Nunes and the House Intelligence Committee. And his answer was, I have nothing to say about the House. Ouch. Um, Right? Or something to that effect. Like, the, the House is not my problem.
0: That is, um, that is not exactly a rousing endorsement. I, I do think it, it it would probably be healthy if if Hipsey just sort of receded a bit and and the Senate Select Committee moved into the fore. But either way,
1: I mean, I think you agree with me that that nothing is stopping
0: Sally Yates from talking legally, right? Oh no! See so that that's the part where I think that the right answer may be that certainly at least some of the things that she knows about are legally privileged, yeah. deliberative, and presidential communication items. I just don't think it's uh, there's a practical pathway to that's her. politically viable. They could, they could file suit tomorrow, and the, yeah, they could. I just don't think they're going to get that.
1: So last thing I want to say about this, unless unless I say something that provokes you, right? All right. Um, the last point is, um, Yates is a lawyer in the correspondence with both the Justice Department and the White House makes one other argument that I think is actually quite telling, which is that even if there is a valid privilege claim here, The stuff that Sally Yates was planning to testify about um, has all privilege has been waived as to all of those matters because um, Trump and Spicer and all these other folks have actually spent so much time talking
0: about it. So that, to me, that's clearly overbroad, but probably true for the most part, for the most relevant parts. I I seriously doubt that it's been entirely waived into everything that was going on. There's got to be deliberative communications and advice giving that's not been talked about. But there's
1: another point here again, right, about how this administration is not helping itself through its own public statements, right? That, you know, that if someone had actually sat down and said, let's game this out, there's going to be an investigation. Oh, yeah, right, right. right? You know, yeah. let's be careful what we say publicly. No, no, clearly,
0: clearly nothing like that is happening right. here, which keeps us in business. It Thanks, keeps us guys. in business, but it
1: also keeps our, our good friend Jack Goldsmith in business in criticizing the White House counsel, because that's the yep. exact kind oh, exactly. of traffic no, content. Right.
0: And you wonder, like, how much of that is, is 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 frankly, incompetence by the counsel or poor performance? How much of it is just the council's not influential enough to make it stick? And can't that, take to, away the Twitter. Well, there's that. Um, You know, I will say, in thinking about the fact that Sally Yates Yates has counsel and about the number of billable hours that this generates, (laughs) I I am hopeful for her sake that she's gotten pro bono support and all this. But it reminds me, you mentioned Jack. I think he talks about in his first... Uh, memoir of his time in the Bush administration, how I think there's a passage where he talks about the expense. When you agree to take on these top-level government positions, there's a really good chance that when you're out, you're going to have all kinds of stuff like this where you really have to have lawyers weighing in expensively to help you. Uh, I think for the most part, the D.C sort of the high-end bar does kind of rally around people who are in good standing yep. with them. Um, I'm not sure everyone's so lucky. It's it's an interesting kind of hidden tax on public service. I think
1: that's right. Although I think this is why, you know, our friend Mark Said, right, a lot of what his firm does is, is these kinds of cases yep. where you have sort of current or recent government employees trying to figure out how to navigate the minefield of, living after us. So I wonder, how do
0: they stay in business if, if so many people who need that help most of all are really not in a position to They sued President Trump for violating the Emoluments Clause. Maybe there's insurance packages <laughs> we don't know about. Uh, all
1: right, so let's move on. Obviously, there's going to be more. I, I I have to think there's, there's still more to the story. Yes, indeed. Um, including, you know, why none of this is treason. We'll save that for another week. Oh, we or, or just go read my Twitter account. None, <laughs> yeah, we'll sleep
0: treason out of it. Yes, I agree. All right, Bobby, you want to say a couple quick words about Mosul? Yeah, let's make this just real quick. Um, we talked last time about the much-discussed uh, collateral damage, the the dead civilians in the uh, the airstrike in, in West Mosul. Um, I think it's worth noting. On one hand, it it seems like it the amount of discussion that's coming out of DOD about this. It, you know, we're sending in people. We're going to look at this closely. The the statements at the DOD press conferences go on and on about the importance of transparency and sensitivity to collateral damage. Um, It it seems to reinforce the claim that some have made that we want to get CIA and covert action out of the lethal force business and put it into... Exclusively the hands of the military um, because of their ability to do exactly this, to try to speak, How, however little ice it may cut in some quarters, to be able to, in good faith, go out there and talk about look, if a mistake was made, we're going to own it and we're going to talk about, you know, maybe consolation payments or something to victims. Who knows? But we're going to, we're at least going to acknowledge this and, and try to learn from it and do better. Uh, and I think that's true up to a point. But I, I just want to add in too that don't assume that because this is the case with the big CENTCOM big military, conventional military uh, combat setting airstrike, that the same thing is true for uses of force that may go on uh, under Title 10 authority, JSOC authority in particular, uh, outside of conventional combat operations like the the urban combat of Mosul. So I, I want to caution people not to assume that this level of transparency and public discussion is just always automatically what you always get with a use of lethal force by the military. I think in some context it's not really that different between the CIA and uh, the military. But that's really all I had to say about that one. No,
1: I mean, listen, I, I think it's really important as we're hearing more and more news stories and noise about the perception that these kinds of strikes are being ratcheted up, that the some of the limits are being ratcheted down. It's really important to separate out what we know yeah. from what's being alleged. Because it seems like if and when it actually does happen, that's going to be the real interesting story. Yeah,
0: so you put your finger on a different issue than the transparency issue. You put your finger on the question of, has Trump uh, changed the rules of engagement such that he's embracing more risk on civilian casualties? Now, this is in Iraq, in a combat setting. Right. This wasn't a situation that would have been governed under the PPD, the presidential policy directive under Obama, anyways. Totally. I, don't, I don't really see it as connected to that. This sort of thing that happened, and you know, there, there's some reason to believe, it. clearly it seems possible there was a U.S. airstrike that killed hundreds of civilians, which is a horrible tragedy. Uh, there's no reason to think this would have happened differently because there, the, this was not a judgment that that was an okay strike with an okay outcome. This was a surprise outcome that no doubt horrified everyone involved. Um, I think that's right. And so then I think the question is, what, what lessons are we going to take away from that? Too soon to tell for yeah. sure. And in an urban combat, this right. is going to happen, especially with an enemy like the Islamic State, which is going to bend over backwards to create that's this right. result on purpose. Um, Bobby, one more thing in the
1: news that we want to hit on this week before we turn to to some more reader listener questions. Yes. We don't really have readers. Um, you want to talk a bit about the this this news release from DOJ about naturalization fraud charges against some Iraqis. We talked about the Ayman Farris case last week, but something about this stood out to you.
0: Yeah. So I I I get the the DOJ press releases, especially the stuff from the National Security Division. Um you know, it really grabbed my attention when when the subject line for this release, you know, re- really. Brightly drew attention to the idea. These Iraqi refugees charged. So I immediately popped it open to see what was going on. Uh, It's a naturalization fraud case involving uh, some individuals who are in the United States but who uh, had links back to uh, what sounds like a terrible episode in 2005. It's it's not clear if these were captured U.S. soldiers or other U.S. persons, but some sort of U.S. persons uh, being abused and harmed in a hostage situation in Iraq. Um, A family member... Of theirs definitely involved, and in some uh, forensic evidence that maybe at least one of them now in the U.S. may also have been involved. Um, it's not really that interesting as some sort of indicator of a different policy. I just you know, I was really struck by how how loudly it, it drew attention to Iraqi refugees. Well, involved because, in I mean, this because right, I mean,
1: your experience and mine is that DOJ, although they're not shy about publicizing
0: these cases, the press releases tend to be fairly anodyne. They do, and, and I'm not saying that this one was overheated. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that in the past you wouldn't have had the country of origin and the, the word refugee appearing in there, but it, it still is kind of striking. It, it just it felt like a little bit more of a, a little more sizzle behind yeah. the press release than I was used to seeing.
1: What you know, one wonders if if perhaps there was some thought in the Justice Department that this would provide yet further justification in the ongoing litigation over the travel ban.
0: It, it, you know, that's part of the context that you wonder. I, and I'm not ready to make that conclusion, though.
1: But speaking of the travel ban, right, we now know um, the next step looks like it's going to be in the Fourth Circuit. Um, the Fourth Circuit sent around a, an order earlier this week asking the parties to brief whether this case should be heard, Bobby, initially by the en banc court as opposed to by a three-judge panel in May, which was the original plan. I think that's a very interesting sign. The Fourth Circuit uh, is the Court of Appeals on which President Obama had the biggest impact with judicial nominations Mm -hmm. and appointments. Um, Ten of the 15 judges on the Fourth Circuit are Democratic appointees. So, you know, not to sort of equate party status with hostility to the travel ban, but certainly it suggests the government's going to have a harder time before the full court than it might before a random panel. Yeah,
0: I know. I think that's probably a right estimate.
1: But so if that's the case, maybe this is actually now really heading for the Supreme Court, albeit not quickly. We'll see at least some of these processes can move quickly, even if not the military <laughs> commission stuff. Oh, military commissions. Now,
0: we had questions from the listeners. We and did. We've actually addressed a, several of them. I think we we've got gotten to two of them. We had the Sally question. Right? We had a question
1: about the practical implications of Belul. Um Just to sort of come back to that quickly because I'm not sure I, I ever answered that as such. Oh,
0: practical implications. Right.
1: Yes. Seems to that there are three potential outcomes, right? The denial assert, cert, um, which leaves intact the DC Circuit's fractured opinion. And Bobby leaves open the big Article Three question about the military commissions and domestic offenses. Yep. Presumably, we'd have to wait for the next case yeah, to raise that. Yeah, yeah. Um, if the court grants and affirms, that is to say, reaches and decides the constitutional question in the government's favor, I think that could have potentially enormous practical implications if the Trump administration both, one, finds a group of detainees it wants to prosecute the military commissions, um, and two, pursues charges
0: against them. Look, we're, we're in a context in which we're, we're continuing to level up the already – significant number of ground forces that the Obama administration had put into right. Iraq. We're, we're increasing that as as Mosul heats up. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. Oh, absolutely not. Look, we're, we're fighting a war in Iraq and Syria. We just don't seem to want to talk about it right. publicly that much. And it's been that way, you know, since well into the Obama administration. Um, and now we're, we're heading towards a time that the Obama administration was building towards in which the two big anticipated urban battles are ones looming closer in Raqqa, ones here right now with Mosul. It's not hard to imagine if you get you know, the Iraqis are not going to be down with any Iraqi detainees. Right. but A lot of these guys are not Iraqi. It's not hard to imagine if you get a green light from the Supreme Court for conspiracy charges. That enables you to relatively easily make charges, just sort of involvement in the Islamic State and material support charges, perhaps. Absolutely, you know th- this will be something that will enable you to use the commissions as a vehicle. Now, now this will be true with that respect to where they're held. That doesn't have to be a Guantanamo. No, there's nothing in the statute that says the commissions have to be a Guantanamo. Absolutely, it could be in theater. So, so it I could, think... be on a, it could be on a could be on naval vessel, couldn't it? <laughs>
1: Under domestic law, there are actually some interesting international law questions about whether you can do. Well, you can't. You
0: can't do long-term detention of POWs there. Right. Beyond that, it starts getting tricky. And there's no reason you couldn't have a temporary uh, detention facility, uh, a temporary uh, pre-trial detention, and then trial process on a commission on a navy vessel. All, all
1: this is to say, a Supreme Court decision affirming, I think, would be a big boon to the Trump administration. Now, if the court grants and reverses, which hint, hint is actually what I think the right answer is, um, Bobby. The practical implications are. You know, also significant, right? It would probably have the exact opposite effect on the commissions. It would limit them to war crimes. Um, We'd probably be talking about the 9 11 case and maybe one or two others. But the same cases you just mentioned would still be tribal in civilian court.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Look, as long as you've got people, especially if it's post-2004, since 2004, the civilian statute for material support to designated foreign terrorist organizations has been extraterritorial. And I think this is actually a technical point that is critically important, Bobby, and is not well understood,
1: right? The material support statute, the one about providing material support to designated foreign terrorist organizations, it's 18 U.S.C. 2339B. It is the most commonly used statute in the criminal, civilian, criminal terrorism cases. Um, it wasn't extraterritorial on and immediately after September 11. Right.
0: There was a, there was a, there was a need to, if you were going to charge those kinds of offenses. There was a need to try to find some way to do it. You couldn't do it in civilian court. That need that that is now a legacy issue that gets less important every year. Right. Material support committed after
1: July 2004 by any individual anywhere in the world is triable in the U.S. civilian court.
0: Yeah. So that in the u.s right that's the real catch it's you you have a better chance clearly you're more likely to to get to a quick resolution and and it will almost certainly be a government favorable resolution if you bring someone you capture an islamic state member You capture him in Iraq or Syria, you bring him to the United States and prosecute him. All great. But you've got to bring that person into the country. That's politically unpalatable. It creates some weird uh, possible outcomes on the backside 20 years later. I'm not sure
1: how politically unpalatable it is. I mean, it was obviously an easy thing for Republicans to criticize President Obama for doing during the Obama administration. You know, President Bush did it too and did not get criticized that heavily for when he did it. Right. You mean,
0: uh, so Hamdi? When he um, was brought in. Hamdi,
1: for, for example. I mean, there are a couple other examples, right, of guys who are brought in to face, you know, ordinary civilian criminal charges. I guess I'm not were sure Were there about examples the
0: of anyone captured overseas? I thought there were a couple. I, I should know this, and I don't know if the I have mean, Abu Ali? Uh, yeah, although wasn't that a case where the government was saying, look, that, that guy's captured by the Saudis. But, but certainly and a U.S. citizen, right? He was a U.S. citizen. Yeah, yeah. we're talking about non-citizens yeah. services. It's an interesting question. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's been done a lot. But I'm not sure the politics are obvious.
1: It certainly would go against the rhetoric of the Trump administration. Sure, it's
0: an against the grand move, which is right. why it might be. Certainly, it's easier for Trump to do it. Only Nixon can go to China, et right. cetera, et cetera. Right. 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 All right, so anyway, uh, suffice
1: to say, huge implications almost no matter what the court does. The weirdest and most frustrating one being if the court denies cert and we're still in this equipoise.
0: Yeah. I will say, I don't think there's any chance... Well, Trump is president. That if new captures occur overseas, they're going to get brought in the United States, only to Guantanamo.
1: I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, the jury true. is out. All right. Uh, two more questions. But hey, I thought, thought they're going to repeal the healthcare right. act. Yeah, what thing. do I know? Which is part of <laughs> why it's been a quiet week. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, two more questions. Um, even though this is not a national security question, one Twitterer tweeter, um, asked why citizens don't have standing to challenge. President Trump's violation of the Emoluments Clause? Is clauses? not a
0: national security question? I think there's overtones in, in so far as one believes there's you know possible corruption. Uh, All right, fair enough. Yeah. Well, certainly foreign yeah, relations but, implications. Okay. Foreign, certainly so. OK, um, so. So citizen
1: standing, I mean, I don't mean to, to be the Fed court's nerd again. Um, the Supreme Court, for better or for worse, is very skeptical of the notion that citizens as such have standing to challenge unconstitutional action by the federal government. The best example of this is a 1974 Supreme Court case called US versus Richardson, where the plaintiff basically sued challenging the fact that the CIA didn't disclose its expenditures um, on the ground that Article One, Section I of the Constitution requires the disclosure of expenditures. It's actually not a frivolous claim. I think there's a reason why he's wrong on the merits. Right. Complicated. Supreme Court says, "Listen, yes, it's your money. Yes, no one else can sue. You still don't have standing just because you're a citizen, right? Yeah. That you can't show up." It opens the, the concrete FBI concrete policy opening
0: the floodgates of litigation. Everything will be endlessly litigated. Right, and
1: so and so with one super small technical exception for a particular kind of Establishment Clause uh-huh. claim, thanks to a 1968 Supreme Court decision mm-hmm. called Flash versus Cohen, citizens in general don't have standing as such. The good news, though is that I, Bobby, at least think we've found a plaintiff with standing. Who does have standing? The Cork Wine Bar. Um, So the Cork (laughs) Wine Bar um, is a wine bar in Washington that is, I believe, a couple of blocks away from the Trump International Hotel. um, And that at least holds itself out as a competitor for business with the various (laughs) drinking establishments (laughs) in the Trump International Hotel. And their allegation is that because of the Emoluments Clause violations, that is because foreign governments... Foreign corporations. They're losing
0: business. They're losing I business. Love it. Oh, that's brilliant. Which is an
1: unjust enrichment claim. And so they're suing the Trump Hotel, right, for all of the ill-gotten gains in profit. Now, this may not be a plausible theory on yeah. the merits. But it at least gets you into the category that you're supposed to be getting into. Right, because clearly the cork wine bar can show a concrete and particularized direct economic injury. And Bobby, all they want to do is survive a motion to dismiss. Oh, that's good. Because that's if they good. survive a motion to dismiss, they get discovery. Um, so, stay tuned on that. Wow. Um, quick footnote to this, another interesting point. The Trump administration this week in New York State Court, Bobby, filed for the first time a claim that P- President Trump is immune from civil suits arising out of conduct that predated his tenure. What? Now, Bobby says, what, like that, because Bobby knows about Clinton versus Jones. In the 1997 Supreme Court case, it says, no, the president does not have such immunity. But, Bobby, Clinton versus Jones only said in federal court, Mm. And Clinton versus Jones expressly reserves whether the president has immunity in state court. So We have a new issue to litigate. Oh my goodness! All right, um, time for some frivolity. The last question we received from one of our listeners was what books we are reading.
0: So the short answer is we don't read. We're whatever. too busy. Yeah, we watch. We, we watch TV. We're too busy watching TV. That's right. That's the question. What are you watching? Been watching? I, uh, besides so, my NCAA bracket going to pieces, you know, no, I'm besides uh, the tournament. I've been watching Big Little Lies. Ah, now that's I gotta say that's that's a pretty fun TV. Way to go HBO. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure why they felt the need to transpose it to California instead of just leaving it in Australia as the book has it. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, it's... appeal it's, to the it's, Americans. It it just seems it just seems kind of weak, you know. Uh, we could handle it. We could watch a show, a good show about things going on in Australia. Are you sure? Well, oh, maybe not. It it does. It makes. I can't decide what it makes California look like. I think that if I lived in Monterey, I would not be very happy. Um, it's pretty compelling. What about you, Steve? You watching anything?
1: Um, so I'm not watching much, um, but I will say I've been watching pretty uh, uh, habitually billions. Um, right, billions being the, the Showtime series um, with the guy who I always want to call Brody, uh, although obviously it's Damian Lewis. <laughs> the, the only problem I have with this show is that I keep wondering why Brody is now all of a sudden running a hedge fund. Um, obviously, <laughs> Damian recovered. Lewis being the the you know Covered. one of the main characters in the early seasons of Homeland. That aside, it's a really great drama about sort of corporate titan hedge fund guy Bobby Axelrod versus. You know, somewhat principled, somewhat Machiavellian U.S. attorney Paul Giamatti. And Paul Giamatti's wife is the super smart uber therapist for the hedge fund run by Bobby Axelrod. Oh, so there's a lot of played by Maggie Siff, who's amazing. Lots of good stuff.
0: All right, I, I'm going to give that one a shot. Um,
1: really quickly on books, right? Yeah, so we do read books. We do read some books. Um, I'm going to plug really quickly three books, two workbooks, and one fun book. All right. Um, so the workbooks, the first one is Courting Death, the Supreme Court in Capital Punishment. This is by Bobby, our colleague, Jordan Stiker. Yay, Jordan. And his sister, Carol Stiker. Yay, Carol. Um, and the short version, Bobby, about this book is, you know... Even as we Americans try to have a real principled debate about capital punishment, the Supreme Court has turned the death penalty into such a hyper-legalized, hyper-doctrinalized affair where the fight is over what standard are you applying, you know, which version of the medical manual you're using to determine disability, have you surmounted these 14 procedural hurdles as opposed to an honest referendum over the morality or not of the death penalty. It's a great read, it's a great history of the Supreme Court and the death penalty. You should check it out. Another plug, Jim Fander, um, our friend and colleague at Northwestern, has a great new book called Constitutional Torts and the War on Terror, um, which is basically about why it has been so difficult for plaintiffs to pursue civil cases against the government arising out of counterterrorism policies. Bobby, this is something we've talked about for We'll talk about it again. For folks who are looking for a more in-depth read, that would be a great exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, but last, and here's the really fun plug: my sister-in-law, Dory Shafrier at Dory, um, has her debut novel coming out in April. It's called Startup a Novel by Dory Shafrier. Um, startup Guys, it's a lot of fun. I actually just finished this book. Um, it's basically a fun romp through startup culture through relationships, through how viral social media can mess up even the most innocuous of ideas. Um, I think a lot of folks who are Bobby of our generational ilk will find a lot about this book that is compelling um, plus, she's my sister-in-law, so you know I get a 0% share of all the profit. <laughs> that
0: actually sounds pretty good. I'm going to check that out. Um,
1: and indeed, for our Austin area listeners, is coming here oh. to do a book event about the book. She give you a book people? Book people on May Yay. 17th. So you can come out and meet her and try to figure out how the hell I ever married into such an amazing and awesome family. Well, I'll throw in a
0: plug for book people, first of all. In Austin, we are really fortunate to have really a great local bookstore called Book People. So if you're a listener who has a book and you're on tour, make sure you get to book people. And tell us. Now, uh, now I have a couple of books, so I'll, I'll recommend one kind of work-related book and one fun one. Um, on the work-related front, I'm going to mention that I just recently finished The Cuckoo's Egg by Cliff Stoll. This is a classic of the cybersecurity uh, nonfiction literary genre. This is an older book uh, where Cliff Stoll, who's a, a big name in, in the field, uh, kind of narrates in this sort of just immensely charming uh, fashion his really early experience detecting a hacker in the system he was working on and the struggles he had trying to get the government to take it seriously. And it really, it's a great snapshot of the early days. Um, and you, you just can't believe some, some of the vulnerabilities that, that existed then. Then again, you can't believe some of the vulnerabilities that exist <laughs> now. now. So that's a, it's a great one if you want to get a feel for where we've been in order to better understand where we are and where we're going. And then, uh, keeping with the technology theme, a really fun read, um, not long ago finished Ann Leckie's Ancillary Justice series. There's three books. It's a, it's a sci-fi series. I'm not going to spoil it. I'm just going to tell you something you would know if you just picked up the back of the first one and started reading it um, to see what it was about. It's, it's one of these stories where you've got an artificially intelligent sort of starship um, but the cool part of it is that the artificial intelligence can find expression through any number of human bodies. And so, so the, the ship is a character that can manifest through, through many people at once, which creates all kinds of cool narrative tricks that, that Anne performs. And then you get to explore what happens if and when you get into a situation where the ship itself is gone and all the other bodies are gone and that artificial intelligence is left in just one body. <laughs> really good sci-fi. Um, That's great,
1: Bobby. And if we stop in the next 10 seconds, we'll be under an hour. Goodbye. Mets-Red Sox World Series, baseball prediction. Adios. See you next week.